and start this out with reviews. Uh, the first one is Eric the Conqueror uh, from Arrow Films uh, USA. This is actually by uh, Mario Bava, uh, and I had not seen this one. I had seen a lot of Mario Bava stuff, mostly the horror-related stuff, but I was interested in checking this one out, even though uh, the Viking kind of films, this is a Viking film. I'm not too familiar with. This was actually inspired by uh, the Vikings, which was a big-budgeted American movie with uh, Kurt Douglas, I believe, was in it. So, uh, you know, Mario Bava took his chance on uh, basically a, a tiny, tiny fraction of that budget, and uh, he's such an inventive director uh, who he knows how to uh, stretch a buck better than anybody. Uh, it made a pretty damn epic movie. Uh, what we have here is uh, two Viking brothers that are separated at birth, uh, and uh, one's played by uh, Cameron Mitchell, and uh, the other one, he's, he's not too familiar with me, I couldn't put my finger on it, but Cameron Mitchell is a huge uh, actor. Uh, he's been in so much stuff, but uh, for the horror fans out there, they'll recognize him from another Mario Bava movie, Blood and Black Lace. They'll recognize him from the Toolbox Murders, from A Whisper to His Scream, a.k.a. The Offspring. Lots and lots and lots of stuff. He's been in a lot of Westerns. Been working a long, long time. He basically plays uh, the brother of the Vikings. They get separated during a battle, and the, the British, it's the British versus the Vikings. Uh, the British take in the younger baby, and they have this mark on them, and uh, the queen raises him as his own. Uh, years down the line, their paths keep uh keep crossing and eventually they realize they're brothers but that's after this giant epic journey uh what's cool about the movie is uh you seamless all the effects that they mix practical uh like it's all practical but when they mix like miniatures with the actual stuff there i couldn't i couldn't spot the stuff he's really great at doing like the matte paintings this kind of stuff or just using miniatures and mixing them in there and uh cutting stuff out of the in in trick cameras is like his uh number one thing he's great at he does a really good job here there's lots of really cool uh sets here as well uh they do the viking like kind of group underneath like this in this cave and there's really cool moments but uh there's these two twins in here who are gorgeous and it kind of adds this weird layer of uh trickery so people get confused it is a little hokey and corny but uh it's really fun and uh like i said it stretched its dollar uh, immensely for the time uh cameron mitchell's really good in this even though he is dubbed which is kind of a shame and the ending is cut off from the original vhs according to the commentary and other things on here so that's a little sad as well although it doesn't really hurt the film from what i could tell uh, it, it's, it's an epic kind of tragedy with uh, a lot of fun battles in here. Uh, really cool moments. Uh, that's, that's all I really had to say about it. It's a nice fun adventure flick with some good moments of drama and uh, some really beautiful locations. Uh, the Blu-ray has a, a slew of stuff on here. It comes from a 2K uh, uh, master. Uh, there's subtitles, of course. But uh, there's a commentary by Tim Lucas, who's amazing, who goes into all the bit players, which will blow your mind. And uh, another really cool thing on here was an audio interview with Cameron Mitchell, which was about an hour long, where he goes uh, back into his career and talks a lot about it. I really enjoyed that. I like these old actors that uh, talk about their lives and talk about their entire careers and kind of focus on Mario Bava. He was a big, he, he loved Mario Bava. He did like three or four films with him. But also another note of interest that uh, really kind of stuck out to me was uh, Cameron Mitchell, I think, was like from Penn. Pennsylvania, this kind of small town, and you think, uh, like, uh, not not rich, not not anybody. Charles Bronson and Jack Plants were like the same way, and you get these like great American actors that come from like I guess squalor or just everyday life. Uh, it doesn't seem like we get those actors and actresses anymore. Uh, you don't get that Hollywood story, which which is kind of a shame, you know, uh, rags to riches kind of storyline. And uh, there's a lot of a. Uh, I don't want to say this, but there's a lot of uh, foreign actors playing American actors, and I know that Americans have done their fair share of that in the past, but uh, there's so many good American actors hopefully around still that need to be discovered or that just, uh, I guess they don't 
try the dream anymore. They're trying the dream, but you don't get these. I don't want to say you don't really get the distinguished looking faces that you used to in the film anymore, but it's a nice release. It looks good. It sounds good. It's got a nice, great commentary. It's got some other features on there too, with interviews and whatnot. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, good stuff. And, uh, the camera Mitchell audio commentary is probably my favorite part. <laughs> While in Sweden making Face of Fire, he met with Ingmar Bergman, who wanted to make Sid Hartha with him, a project which never got off the ground. As long as I knew uh, the words, as long as I knew the phonetic pronunciation, it, it was easy for me. Uh, it wasn't a problem. Uh, no problema, as they say. Bava was working with a fraction of the resources Fleischer had at his disposal, meaning, for instance, that going to Norway to shoot the fjords was out of the question. The next one here, uh, this one actually blew me away. This is from Arrow Films as well. Uh, I picked this up a, a little bit ago. It's called Dillinger. Yeah, it's by John Milius, who did uh, Conan the Barbarian, among other things, and uh, Red Dawn. Uh, and it stars Warren Oates and Ben Johnson, who were in the Wild Bunch together as brothers. This time they're at uh, they're at each other's throat. Uh, Warren Oates plays Dillinger. Uh, Dillinger is a real-life criminal gangster from the 30s. Uh, and uh, if people aren't familiar with the story, they knew he's a, he's an infamous bank robber. Uh, and uh, who is it? Melvin Purvis, who's a famous... Uh, this is basically the formation of the FBI here. He's one of the first guys. Uh, is after Dillinger and it's played by Ben Johnson who is uh, great as well Ben Johnson is, for horror film fans will recognize him from the town that dreaded sundown but uh, he's in a slew of stuff as, as Warren Oates is in stuff like I said Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia which I did last week and uh, he's in The Wild Bunch as well he's in Stripes with Bill Murray a uh, great role in that but uh, this one was uh, the directorial debut of John Milius uh, I had actually uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure I, I, I know he's a, a huge writer and I hadn't seen that many movies. I saw Conan the Barbarian that he had directed. Uh, but I knew that he had uh, put his stamp of uh, his writing on tons of movies. Uh, infamously uh, known, uh, well, rumored at least, uh, that he wrote the line that Robert Shaw, the big monologue that uh, Robert Shaw gives in Jaws. And uh, another funny uh, tidbit that I had always heard that Walter from uh, Big Lebowski was actually based on John Milius. And if you see pictures of both of them next to each other, it's 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 dead on. But uh, regardless, uh, he's an interesting character and he made one hell of a movie. I was blown away by this one. I like this kind of, uh, these gangster movies, especially made in the 70s, but this is an AIP picture, but you can't tell. The budget doesn't really show, and, uh, it's, it's so well written and so well, uh, you know, I guess executed it, that I couldn't tell it was an AIP. Not to not to hit on a AIP or anything, but you know, I when I think AIP, I think like shellacky, really fun B movies uh, like science fiction and horror, and although some gangster films not quite as good as this. Uh, the supporting cast in this movie is uh, is tremendous as well. You get Harry Dean Stanton, Jeffrey Lewis, John P. Ryan, and uh, Richard Dreyfuss in an early role, and he plays Babyface Nelson, who is a uh, uh, actually more sadistic and uh, infamous, uh, not infamous, but Dillinger was most infamous, but sadistic uh, gangster from that time period. This movie does take a lot of historical liberties, uh, as uh, the commentary on here will uh, will tell you, but uh, a lot of it, uh, it seems pretty genuine. And uh, Warren 
Warren Oates is just one of those uh, great characters. Uh, the media in this kind of situation, it, it turned like Dillinger into like a Billy the Kid type character. It, it glorified these kind of uh, criminals in a way because people were so upset at the, the depression and the banks and everybody having all the money. So it gave them a kind of a hero in a villain or a hero in somebody that was an anti-authoritarian character, uh, which happens throughout history a lot of times. But uh, uh, Warren Oates is so good at playing that kind of character like that. He's, uh, he's a bad guy, but you can't help but like him, even though he's vicious. He's like a the guy just reminds me sometimes of this really vicious, mean little dog, but he's also dangerous as hell. And uh, his smile with those big, gnarly teeth of his, uh, he's just really tremendous at it. And uh, him going uh, opposite of Ben Johnson at times is really good. Uh, one of my favorite moments in this movie that I really loved was uh, this little boy comes up to Ben Johnson and uh, the, the, the media whore, uh, Dillinger's a media whore and so is a Purvis. They're both media whores. They want the attention. And uh, this little boy runs up to Ben Johnson. Uh, he sees him and he, he sees that he has a gun and he shows him the gun. You want to see the gun? I'm Melvin Purvis. I'm the guy after Dillinger. Well, he's playing. The kid's playing cops and robbers. He says, are you the cop or the robber? He says, the robber. So uh, he starts talking to him, and he tells him he's Melvin Purvis, and the kid doesn't believe him, which kind of gives him a little ego boost. And then they, they talk about this in the commentary as well. But what I loved about it was the kid uh, basically tells him, I'm not, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to be a cop. You could have a badge too, but I don't want to. I, I want to be a, a criminal like Dillinger because he doesn't want to go to school. And uh, Ben Johnson's reply is, but everybody's got to go to school. And it's just, I love that. It's just like he's so far distant. He doesn't understand these people. He's not one of them. I, I don't want to say he's not a regular person. He's so, uh, I guess I don't want to compare it to today, but you know, you know, a lot of the politicians are so, they don't know anything, what it's like to be a normal person. And that's been like that for hundreds of years. So it, it's a really interesting moment, but you have these two uh, different sides of the law and, and, and to be honest, uh, Ben Johnson in this is just as brutal as Dillinger at times. Dillinger doesn't take it pleasure in the killing and this movie uh although the the violence is matter of fact there are innocent people who get shot in the mix and it, it's not a it's it's a glorified picture about gangsters but the violence in there has circumstances it's not just well i just shoot a bunch of people and nobody i don't want to get shot get shot there's circumstances to the violence which i enjoy uh, and a lot of that like michael mann would later do that uh and he and stuff like that or john frankenheimer and ronan would do that as well so i, I kind of like that uh again uh like it's just a tremendous movie uh the way it's shot the way it's edited although it's not historically accurate uh, it, it's just a great great movie and uh richard dreyfus in this gives a, an amazing performance you can tell he's going to be a star uh he plays such a little brutal bastard and he's so good at it but i i really like this one uh on here uh the the special features like i said there's a nice commentary by a, a film historian i believe uh on here and uh there's some other things on here too uh, there's yeah there's some featurettes on here one with the cinematographer which is nice uh, brand new featurettes made uh, one with the guy who did the music which is cool uh, all in all really great release for an excellent movie uh, can't recommend it enough I thought it was one of the best movies I saw all year we're in the money you got a nice smile too miss you've been robbed by the John Dillinger gang that's the best there is these few dollars you lose here today, they're going to buy you stories to tell your children, your great-grandchildren. I'm John Dillinger! John Dillinger. Ah! All right, everybody, point right where you are. This is a robbery. G-man, huh? I like that. Government man. And I intend to smoke one of these over each of those men's dead bodies. We're in the money. Come on, my honey. 
and he emphasizes the gun, and he uses the stairway especially well as a prop for staging the build-up to the shooting and then a spectacular fall toward the camera. This could be one of the big moments in your life. The next one is Don't Look in the Basement and Don't Look in the Basement Part 2 from Brink. Uh, yeah, uh, Don't Look in the Basement is a 1973 um, kind of video. It made the video nasties list. Kind of drive in a schlocky movie. Uh, my dad used to mention it just because of the title. I think he originally saw it with Last House on the Left or something. My dad's not a huge movie fan, but he knew uh, when he when he, he wasn't. A, he loved movies, but he wasn't like a fanatic, like I guess I'd say myself. But he for some reason he knew what Don't Look in the Basement was. So I was familiar with it as a kid. I had seen it on one of those budget DVDs. Yeah, uh, this is a Blu-ray of it. Uh, it doesn't look great. They mentioned that they tried to clean it up as best as they could, but uh, this is one of the last remaining prints, so the quality's not particularly very good at all. Uh, but that's okay. The movie's not particularly very good either. But uh, it's definitely one of those movies that uh, it's historical importance, I guess, in America and the drive-in circuit and the video nasties list and all that. I guess it's, you know... So that, that, that's an interesting point about this one. Uh, what we have here is a group of loonies. Uh, I don't want to say loonies, but they're people with mental disorders. I guess that was a little insensitive, but these guys aren't like your typical mental disorder people. They don't even seem like they have real ailments. They're just dangerous and sadistic a lot of times. A group of people with uh, a lot of mental problems in this house uh, that range to ridiculous levels. One thinks they have this weird baby. One is the judge who keeps saying who, who's really uh, can be violent and get sadistic, but also is kind of a really has no backbone. And one thinks he's like a, a five-year-old kid, Sam. Uh, they're being taken care of by this doctor and something horrible happens to the doctor and things start to slide down and you, it's one of those, uh, the, the inmates running the asylum type deals and you, you kind of get that right off the beginning. Uh, it's not horrifically violent, it does have moments of, uh, blood, guts here and there, but it has its moments of that kind of stuff. Uh, all in all, I think it's a very kind of slow movie. I do think it's kind of cool to see like it, you know, as a piece of cinema history. I don't think it's particularly great. Like I said, it is a, a tad slow, but it has its moments and it has some memorable things in it. Uh, and the judge is a really great bad guy. I guess he's a bad guy, but uh, the way he his acting performance is fairly solid. There's some nudity in here that pops up. One of the girls is... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Nymphomaniac. So they, they shoehorn that in. They're like, well, we got to have nudity in this thing. I mean, what are we going to do? Let's make one of the patients a nymphomaniac. So there, there's that kind of stuff going on. Uh, and all in all, I think it's worth a watch, especially if you liked, like the Grindhouse movies. But uh, it, it's memorable, but not particularly great. Uh, the sequel on here kind of surprised me. Don't look in the basement, too. I was like, this is made years, years later by the Suns director. So that's kind of cool. Shot in the same historical house in that location. I believe it was Georgia. I'm not 100% sure. 
or Texas, maybe Texas. Was it Texas? I can't think it is Texas, but, uh, they go down and they, they make a sequel. Uh, it has some familiar faces in here as Jim O'Rear in it from the hospital movies and, uh, the other, the ghost hunter guy, actor from the hospital movies as well. And, uh, I was expecting something bad. I was just like, well, usually sequels made this far late in the game are not particularly good. And, uh, it didn't have much to live up to, to be honest. I don't think don't look in the basement. It's a particularly amazing movie. So I was like, okay, let's give this a shot. And, uh, surprisingly it's decent. Uh, it kind of adds this weird uh, ghost story element in. They bring in Sam back uh, into the asylum, and it kind of stirs up these old weird moments. And you find out he's in the same asylum, and people start to end up dead, and they're starting to get possessed by the old uh, inmates. It kind of reminds me of something like Slime City Massacre, how the slime's possessing the people in the in the present, but except in a don't look in the basement type style. Uh, Jim O'Rear, and uh, he plays kind of a semi comic relief. Uh, there's some really gratuitous gore in here, which works pretty well. I believe Marcus Cook worked on the movie. The gore is pretty solid, and uh, there's the, there's some attempts at uh, some nice drama in here. The guy who plays the lead doctor is really good. You'll notice him from uh, We Are Still Here. He's the, the dad of that one. He's in this, and he plays the main star, and I think he's a really good actor. In fact, most of the acting for an independent movie, a lot of people are complaining about it. I think it's solid, especially on their budget level. Pretty good acting. Uh you know, I think it's actually probably a better movie for the budget, especially for uh, compared to the first one. I think they did a good job, honestly. Uh, it's got good practical effects. There's uh, real attempts at drama. And uh, they try to take an interesting concept here without just doing exactly the same movie over again while paying homage to his father's movie. And I kind of uh, can dig that they did that, although some of the humor is a little odd. And uh, the end stinger, I think, at the end, kind of after the credits thing, is kind of really just uh, dumb. A little too stupid, but uh, all in all, it's it's not a horrible movie. Uh, on here, they have a nice uh, little um, what what's the word I'm thinking? They have a commentary, of course, which is cool, and uh, they have like a video diary making of Jim O'Rear filmed it, and uh, they they talk about making the movie and eating stuff and, and driving around Texas and what they're eating for dinner. That's and it's fun. It's silly. They have a goof. They're kind of goofballs in it, and uh, it was nice to see that they had some fun on it. All in all, it's a, it's a fairly decent release. The Don't Look in the Basement doesn't look great, but Don't Look in the Basement 2 was a pleasant surprise, much better than I expected. The line between sanity and madness can be crossed in a single step. And with this step, you enter the nightmare world of terror. Judge Cayman, whose iron self-control hides the urge to kill. Harriet, a mother's love, twisted into the malignant shape of evil. The sergeant, living in the hell of an aimless war, fighting a battle within himself that he lost long ago. Allison, in a desperate need for love, an obsession that could drive her to murder. Danny, whose sense of humor triggers a violent act of revenge. Dr. Masters, who has her own idea of the gentle art of healing. And Charlotte, who left the world of sanity and security only to be trapped in the nightmare world of madness, a nightmare she cannot escape. They all met on the day the insane took over the asylum. Don't. Look in the basement. Rated R. New case file. 
Sam Withers, lobotomy patient, age 72. History shows a post-procedure incident at a place called Stevens Sanitarium where he murdered all the other patients and doctors. The one patient I get to try to impress the teacher, I can't fix because he doesn't have a brain. Used to be considered a valid form of treatment. If you're Frankenstein. <laughs> now, I don't know how, but something is happening to all of us, and the people in this file are the key. Not just something. I didn't know who I was. She didn't. Everything started when Sam got here. That would explain a whole lot about what's been going on here. I mean, like the ghosts and everything. You're telling me that this place was once Steven's sanitarium? You didn't know? Are you all right? No, I'm not all right. Do you have any idea what's going on around here? Yes, it's a mental institution. It's this house with Sam got. She started going crazy, I had to sedate her. Why don't we just lock the door and get the hell out of here? She might hurt someone. Did you see what I just saw? They're not after you. They're after all of us. You need to help me. What we need is some time to figure out what the hell is going on here before it gets any worse. Alright, the next one is Orloff the Mad Mutilator. I think the reversible cover is the other name, but I always remember this as Orgloff or the Mad Mutilator, regardless. Yeah. This is not a shot on video movie, although you might think it is. It's a Super 8 movie that was uh, edited on beta, beta tape, I think, or edited on tape, regardless. And I think, well, not on beta tape, but edited on tape. And I think the master for this is from a beta tape. But I'm not 100% sure on uh, which tape. But it's definitely not Super 8 quality. Uh, the only remaining master was on a tape. So it doesn't look great. It looks like it's shot on video. And... Uh, the caliber of the movie is probably a shot on video movie. This is a French, I believe, splatter film. Uh, it, it's a lot like a German splatter film, but I believe it is from France, which is uh, very confusing, to be honest, can, when you consider this stuff. has a, a, has a violent shit feel, to be honest. Uh, I think it predates violent shit, and uh, it's not as stupid as violent shit. What we have here is a guy in the wilderness, uh, this mad mutilator and uh, he basically hacks and slashes everybody he comes in contact with uh some of the acting is atrocious really really bad especially the one of the first victims is trying to run from him and i don't know if it's the editing or the choreographed stuff the fight choreograph is just awful and abysmal and just doesn't work very well at all but uh as it was progressing i was like okay we're getting into this movie it's about 45 minutes in or 37 minutes or something like that and i was like we got your typical shot on video slasher movie with some some semi-gratuitous stuff happening here and uh at one point there's a chainsaw fight which i thought was kind of really cool and over the top and it started to win me over a bit and i was like you know what for this movie's caliber that came out of nowhere and uh it was pretty damn cool but uh towards the very end of the movie uh we see uh an amazing uh, i'm gonna spoil this a little bit there's a zombie attack because it's the last 30 minutes uh man mutilators victims who apparently they kind of uh shove this uh, storyline in that he was a, a war hero and he tortured the people he captured and he's evil in a way but he's a hero at the same time they come back as zombies and the, the last half an hour of the movie is him fighting a bunch of zombies which I thought was ridiculously awesome in a way and there's some good gore in that 
in that aspect. I mean, it's not great gore, but uh, it's zombie action made in, like, I believe the late 80s kind of similar looking like a shot on video movie. So I dug that. That's definitely my type of thing. And especially when I didn't expect it, which I kind of ruined it for you guys. But uh, uh, you guys might not even want to watch it until you hear that. So uh, The Mad Mutilator, it's worth your time if you like the low-budget stuff. Kind of like on the level of The Abomination or Violent Shit. If Violent Shit and The Abomination mixed... And less, uh, I love the Abomination, Violent Shit 1, not so much. But uh, if they mixed, I think that you would get something like the Mad Mutilator. Or even like a Redneck Zombies. It's definitely uh, inspired by like Texas Chainsaw Massacre with that kind of deal. But with zombies and uh, no budget and no real acting and stuff like that. So uh, there's lots of stuff that you're like, why are they doing this? And some of it comes together at the end. Other times you're just like, why did they do that? Uh, there's two versions on here. There's a cleaned up looking version and the original Tape Master. Whichever you prefer, I'm not sure. Uh, if it looks like it's up your alley, then check it out. indicator this is a uk import this is the stone killer uh this is i believe the last michael winter charles bronson uh film i needed to see uh bronson and winter had worked together on stuff like the mechanic uh shadows land and death wish one two and three uh those are all pretty damn great if you ask me but uh stone killer is okay this is based off a book this was made in 1973 uh bronson plays a a cop who um is kind of forced to go to uh L, well, the California from New York because, uh, you know, he's a little trigger happy, although he seemed semi-justified in his act. Uh, Bronson's not a very likable character in this one, which is kind of sad, although, you know, he's not necessarily a good guy in the mechanic either, although he's still likable for some reason. This one, he's kind of an asshole, kind of a jerk. Uh, Ralph Waite's in it. Uh, Ralph Waite is in Cliffhanger and uh, Shadows Land as well. He plays uh, Bronson's kind of partner. He's, a, he's kind of a buffoon, a dickhead, a uh, racist cop. But uh, Bronson stumbles on this crazy, crazy plot of uh, the mafia hiring Vietnam vets to kill a bunch of old Dons that he wants out of the picture. So that's what you have going here. What you do have is some decent action in the movie. Uh, and also Paul Coslow's in it from uh, Mr. Majestic, another Bronson movie. But... Uh, it's uh, something that doesn't really... At the end, it leaves more... Uh, I wanted more action. I wanted more Bronson. It's just... It has its moments that are really great, and it has a great concept, and uh, some moments where people pop in, uh, good actors that I recognized. But all in all, it just it fell a little short. Solid movie. Bronson's okay, uh, and it does try to tackle the issue. Uh, it's kind of strange to see them uh, do the police brutality in here with shooting people and beating guys up, and Bronson kind of basically holding things over people's head to get what he wants. Uh, crooked cop here. Uh, I don't think this would fly in today's movies, but... Uh, it, it does a lot of things where it leads to places that don't lead anywhere else, and it's just kind of drifting away from the plot, and they're not good enough scenes to keep in there. Uh, but uh, there's a, there's some great uh, moments in here, uh, particularly a mob, uh, a hit from the Vietnam guys that's pretty gratuitous. Uh, 
by the end of the movie, I just kind of forgot a lot about it. Uh, on here, there's a commentary, but it's not really a commentary track. It's just basically Michael Winter has a big talk with people, and it's old, and it goes over it. And a lot of that seemed really fun. There's an interview with Paul Coslow uh, on here as well where he talks about Bronson. And uh, I love Bronson. He doesn't make him sound like too nice of a guy in this set, which kind of kind of saddened me. But, you know, it is what it is. Uh, all in all, it's, it's not a horrible movie. It has its moments. Uh, if you're a Bronson aficionado, I would say check it out. Uh, if you like Michael Winter's other stuff, I would say check it out. If you like 70s crime movies, I say it's worth your time. Uh, or you could just watch something like uh, The Mechanic or Mr. Majestic for great Bronson. Let's go. A stone killer is nobody's friend. He's a gun who's hired to do the dirty work. Sometimes he wears a badge. Stop! Lieutenant Lou Torrey is good at his job. They say if he didn't have a badge, he'd be on the 10 most wanted list. He's straight, he's got experience, and he's the best damn detective we ever had. You can't hit me! He's vicious. Who hit you? I wouldn't do a thing like that. I'm beginning to find you a little hard to swallow, Torrey. We have 40 men. They're all well-trained in combat, transportation, communications. All of them anonymous, not one of them has a criminal record. Are you sure, Al, a family war is not easy to handle? Tell you what, you start the blaze, I'll call the fire department. Tori's up to his eyebrows in godfathers, informers, junkies and trigger men with itchy fingers. It's hot in New York. Even hotter in L.A. And they're freaking out in the wide open spaces in between. one is uh, Hands of Steel by Sergio Martino. Uh, yeah, this one. Oh boy. I put this in and uh, I had never seen it. Uh, this is the Code Red uh, Blu-ray. Uh, I wanted to watch it because George Eastman's in it, John Saxon's in it, and uh, I was like, all right, I know it's kind of a, a weird kind of a strange robotic Universal Soldier storyline. Let's see what's going on. Uh, right when the movie starts off, it seems like it's kind of in like the... Uh, Pre, right before the apocalypse happens with some strange disease and uh, this uh, muscle-bound guy who just completely ridiculous and weird uh, tries to assassinate this old man uh, who is, uh, you know, fighting for the cure to cure this disease. And you realize that this guy who did it, uh, who's super strong soldier, is uh, kind of uh, brainwashed by the government and he had one of those uh, sleeper, sleeper hitmen. 
uh, he, he eventually escapes and he ends up in this kind of dust bowl town and, uh, he, uh, starts this relationship with this, uh, this woman and, uh, he starts fights with these local, uh, arm wrestlers, one played by George Eastman, these truckers. So all of a sudden it kind of turns into like an over the top storyline, which was like a Terminator universal soldier storyline and post-apocalyptic storyline. Then all of a sudden it's like, now we're over the top. Of course the, uh, the, the group, uh, the agency finds out about it and they start sending goons afterwards. Uh, and at times it becomes really, uh, gory and mean spirited, which is kind of surprising, but not really because it is Italian it is Sergio Martino. People get shot that you don't really expect sometimes. Uh, and, uh, George Eastman plays such a son of a bitch. John Saxon in here is great as always, but he's a little wasted, which was a little disappointing. Uh, some of the bad guys in here are hilarious with their glasses and they tend to just shoot each other when they don't do the, the right job. Uh, at the end of the movie, there's this really ridiculous moment where one of the uh, guys that you think's a bad guy comes and he's like, get in, I got, I'll help you out with the truck. Uh, it's cheesy, it's stupid, but uh, I enjoyed the hell out of it. But at the same time, I don't remember very many details and I watched this just days ago. So it's not necessarily a, a recommendation, but there is some really cool fighting, and it's hilarious. It's hilarious, and in, in a lot of a lot of ways. Uh, but there is some really cool moments where uh, the super soldier faces off against another super soldier, which I absolutely loved. But uh, yeah, I'd say it's worth checking out, especially if you like uh, this movie. Uh, I mean, these types of movies, which are these kind of cheesy Italian movies. Uh, the print didn't look particularly great. It just looked like an HD master right off the the, the negative, maybe, or something like that. Uh, but a lot of these Italian movies look rough. Uh, I guess they're in rough shape. There's some uh, special features on here. Interview with John Saxon is the one I chose to watch. There's other ones, interviews with uh, the lead in here, who, who's not particularly amazing or anything. But, yeah, that's Hands of Steel. <laughs> with mission as directed and don't let there be any mistakes neutralize neutralize just follow my orders and we won't fail of Project HOS-1. that I'd seen years ago and I enjoy the hell out of it. It is uh, Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. It's kind of strange that I'm reviewing The Wild Bunch after I, I talked about Dillinger with Ben Johnson and Warren Oates in here again. But uh, The Wild Bunch is a 1969 uh, Western that changed everything for Westerns and everything for film in general. Uh, it was uh, ridiculed for being extremely violent for the time, uh, although movies like, uh, you know, uh, Bonnie and Clyde had come out previous and stuff like that. But The Wild Bunch follows this group of, uh, you know, 
outlaws at, at like right at the cusp of like the end of the old west so they're they're a dying breed and they decide to do this one last bank heist that ends in a tragedy uh and they the the, the remaining gang end up kind of heading down to this mexican this mexican area and they they see this small kind of town and uh, although they are bad guys uh they decide uh at the very end to do the right thing sort of uh but uh it's such a strange movie because uh, these guys are horrible, but the posse that's hunting them is terrible as well. So it's definitely the Western where everybody's bad, not really a good person in the movie. Uh, and the bad guys have their flaws, but they have this one uh, redeeming quality that the other guys, the posse, don't have. They have this weird loyalty to each other. Even though sometimes they treat each other horribly, they have this weird loyalty. Uh, the actual... The main gang in the movie is, uh, you know, uh, William Holden, Ernest Borgnine, Warren Oates, and Ben Johnson. Also appearing in here is Robert Ryan, uh, L.Q. Jones, and Strother Martin, who play these uh, part of the posse. Uh, the the latter two play these buffoon kind of weirdo guys, and they do it particularly well. Kind of, uh, they would rehash that uh, kind of uh, that kind of characters in uh, the Ballad of Cable Hogue later on. Um, by Sam Peckinpah, so they're really great in it, but, uh, you know, you gotta give it up for, uh, the main four in here, they do such a tremendous job, uh, like I said, it's one of those movies about the Old West shifting to an end, but it's also a movie about the circumstances of violence, and it's also a movie, I guess a lot of people would say that, uh, it's, uh, allegory for Vietnam, uh, at the time, there's a lot of westerns being made, but uh, I listened to some things about the movie and watched the documentaries and the featurettes on here, and you know other people having theories about the movie and whatnot. But I, I you know, it's just one of those movies that has a lot of meaning into it, and it's not—it's completely different. Like the opening of the movie has these scorpions being uh, killed by these fire ants, and the kids are kind of like controlling it all. And at the very end, they just throw these uh, flames on—they uh, throw these uh, straw and just burn them all. Like these kids can be cruel, but that's how kids are. And William Holden makes eye contact, I believe, with one of the kids, or at least him and uh, Ernest Borgnine look over at it. And at the very end of the movie, during the big shootout, I don't want to spoil too much, but uh, uh, one of the characters gets shot by a kid, and uh, you see kids shooting, and you're thinking, you know, that's a little foreshadowing, isn't it? You know, that maybe the scorpions are the wild bunch, and the ants eating the scorpions are actually the army they're fighting, and the kids are controlling it all. <laughs> Not necessarily, but you know what I mean. Uh, but regardless, they end up having this weird loyalty and uh, just an excuse to go out in a blaze of glory, and they do it. And it's uh, probably one of the best shootouts of all time, if not the best shootout in a Western, if not even an action movie, if without period. It's just uh, Peck and Paul have made this slow motion, uh, which everybody knows, uh, and it, it's, it's, it's horrible, but it's beautiful at the same time. He was really good at that. And uh, seeing interviews with Peck and Paul, he does not want to glorify violence, although it is glorified because it's so beautiful he wants to show the circumstances of violence and there was a nice uh in the commentary of dillinger the guy doing the commentary compares dillinger a lot to the wild bunch which is probably what got me wanting to watch it again and uh he talks about how john milius would do his stages of violence as a matter of factly boom 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 no slow motion when people get shot it, you feel it you feel it, you hear it you know and cut away from the violence more than Peck and Paul would. Uh, Peck and Paul would make it like a sick dance of death, which is very beautiful and disturbing at the same time. But throughout the movie, like when violence happens, there's circumstances, there's a lot of innocent bystanders that get killed throughout. And, uh, it's just, uh, it's just, uh, it, it's not pleasant to watch, but it's also amazing. And the performances of the lead four is great. William Holden and Ernest Borgnine together are, are wonderful. To, uh, William Holden always calls him a lazy bat. Come on, you lazy bastard. And at the very end of the movie, uh, I don't like he says it one more time and it's just, a, it's a brilliant moment. Uh, 
Ben Johnson and Warren Oates have less uh, humanity in them than the other two. They're they're the Grush brothers, and they're just animals, to be honest. But they have that loyalty to the gang and uh, loyalty to each other. Uh, Warren Oates is great, and Ben Johnson's great as well. Uh, everyone's tremendous in the movie. I, I can't recommend it enough. It, it, the director's cut runs a little long. Uh, and the opening and the ending are just such two of the most amazing scenes uh Ever so, uh, the ending. Uh, the, see, see, going through the whole movie, there's lots of good character development as well, and uh, a lot of directors have trouble making bad guys uh, entertaining or likable nowadays. And uh, Sam Peckinpah definitely doesn't have that problem, except Straw Dogs. Is, I don't know if I particularly like anyone in Straw Dogs except maybe the wife, but uh, it's just. In a wild bunch, he just has an amazing way of making you interested interested in bad people. They have redeeming qualities, and he does that really well. Uh, I think that a lot of uh, filmmakers nowadays could, you know, take note in that and making uh, at least some of the people redeemable in their movies to make it even halfway decent to watch. Uh, but that's the wild bunch. On here was a couple features which I enjoyed. Uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, watching uh, the feature about Peck and Paul and how a lot of the. Uh, Actors they got to interview, like Billy Bob Thornton and Michael Madsen were in there. And Madsen mentions the scene where right before they go to the final battle, War, uh, William Holt says, come on, let's go. And all Warren Oates says is, why not? And he said he got chills on his back. And I love when people gush about moments that give them chills or get them excited in film. That just makes me like reevaluate that scene to a certain extent and be like, that is a great scene. That's better that scene than I thought it already was. But there's so many iconic scenes in here. The walking at the end when they just go for the walk. Uh, I'm sure that... And it's funny to watch like these old Peck and Paul movies and realize it's like, you know what? Or even Dillinger and watch how much was stolen from them or they were inspired by old films and then newer films were inspired by them. So I don't want to say stolen is not necessarily a word, but so much inspiration that these movies had caused. But uh, there's nice featurettes on the disc. I wish this would get like this deluxe treatment like it deserves, like this amazing 4K scan of the Wild Bunch in both editions. Like the So yeah, but uh, it's just a masterpiece. And uh, if you if you think it's a bad movie or you don't like it, I don't know what we have to talk about, to be honest. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Wild Bunch, amazing movie with an amazing cast and uh, a lot of uh, things going on i recommend checking it out so much different layers in the movie the wild west was pretty well tamed by 1913 i saw one just like it in waco hey fight you know what i hear i hear they take out one of those things up north that can fly no that was a balloon you damned old fool no the old man's right they got motors Wings go 60 miles in less than an hour. Driven to the border by the irresistible thrust of civilization were the remnants of the breed that had made the West wild. If they move, kill them. The payrolls were harder to get at. The army rode the railroad now. There were still a few trails for the kind who'd be cold before they were tamed. They called them the Wild Bunch. Pike had been a gentleman of principle. He still had a principle or two. We're not getting rid of anybody. We're gonna stick together just like it used to be. When you side with a man, you stay with him. And if you can't do that, you're like some animal. You're finished. Dutch had dug for gold. 
he gave up digging. How many cases did you take from the train? 16 cases of rifles. We lost one on the trail. He stole it. Thornton should have been a lawyer. He always argued. Hold it! Relax, it's just some champagne we ordered. Sykes had been a gunman in his day. He still had the gun. We, we, we gotta get him back! How? Gorch had been trying for years. Sometimes he almost worked up to normal. I want you to meet my fiance. <laughs> <laughs> right about now so uh if you want a question asked uh answered on the next show go ahead and uh ask it on there and get entered in the contest to win all right let's go uh jonathan wilhelm what is your favorite segment from the creep show uh, series uh so one two and three i never saw three or do i count tales from the dark side as part three uh regardless uh it's got to be from one just because one's the best one uh man that's a tough question i love the crate but I love all of them, but I think I'm going to have to go with uh, the Leslie Nielsen, Ted Danson one, because I love watching Manic, Manic uh, Leslie Nielsen. I love watching him be evil, and then at the end, I can hold my breath a long time. I think that's my favorite with Leslie Nielsen. I just, uh, it's something to tide you over, I believe that one's called. Uh, you know, I also really love the wraparound with Tom Hankins. He's like, ah, when he gets stuck in the neck. Just, Creepshow is one of the best movies ever as far as horror movies are concerned and movies in general. Uh, Gabe, any stuff you're looking forward to from On Earth Films besides the next two APG entries? Yeah, uh, which I'm surprised they uh, started announcing that they're going to do like the Unnameable on Blu-ray or the Unnameable 2 or Unnameable and Dark Side of the Moon, uh, which I think is really cool that they're getting into some of the older movies and going to put them on Blu-ray because uh, their nice uh, Blu-ray deluxe editions are really cool. Like they did, uh, what is that? They did a couple movies like that Blood Shock, and I think that's really cool how they do that. Lovely stuff, and I'm looking forward to what else they put on especially if they start putting out classic movies. Not that I don't like the new stuff, but it'd be cool to see some them handle some classic movies as well. Carl Espinoza, why do you think that most horror collectors have Jess Franco titles in their collection? I bought the entire Jess Franco DVD release from Full Moon. All movies were blind by, and I thought they were hor horrible. Horror, but it was porno. Oh, horror, but it was porno. I think a lot of people have Jess Franco in their collection because he was so prolific. He did so many movies, but also Jess Franco tended to push boundaries. And uh, regardless of the outcome of the movies, Jess Franco always pushed boundaries. Uh, he, he did so many movies and he worked so much that you're bound to get a couple Franco movies in, in your collection. And sometimes they're good. Like, uh, I think his Dracula's good. I think that Bloody Moon's okay. I think uh, 
what else? There's got to be a couple others that are fairly decent. But uh, he does so much, and he pushed boundaries, so I think... And also, maybe his movies are preserved well. I don't know. But uh, I think that he was making them around the time of, like, the Lucio Fulci and Dario Argento and uh, Umberto Lenzi. So, you know, he got, got a shoehorn in. Maybe he's more caliber of Joe D'Amato, I'd say. Not as good even as Joe D'Amato, if you ask me. Maybe. Some of his movies are. But I think that, you know, he was around that time. Right time, right place. Did so many movies, and he always pushed boundaries, so... Uh, Mr. Tony the Dead, what movie would you like to see Arrow put out a special edition of? Martin. Love to see him do Martin. They're doing uh, the other three uh, early Romero movies. Love to see Martin in that slate, which it doesn't look likely or they would have released it. Love to see him do Colobus, which I, I'm going to always, I'm going to be pumping Colobus until that movie's out on Blu-ray. Colobus, I want it. Uh, Brian Baker, kind of a strange question, but are there any movies that you have seen where you thought it would have been better if someone else had directed it instead? I'm sure there are. You know, you got to see that movie where you're watching it and be like, I wonder if so-and-so directed this, if this would be any better. Uh, Well, Richard Stanley on uh, Island of Dr. Moreau, that's one for sure. I mean, we saw that documentary. uh, That would have probably been better if he had directed it, but that's that's just obvious because the documentary. I'm trying to think of some off the top of my head if it would have been done better if so-and-so would have directed it. Oh, geez, that's tough. That really is tough. Uh, I'm sure there's movies that were wrote, written by certain people that you would have loved to see direct. Uh, probably any zombie movie that Romero didn't direct besides Return of the Living Dead would have been better. Or zombie, of course. But, you know, like that kind of stuff. Uh, man, that's such a tough question. Such a tough question. Uh, I know there's some. Yeah, but I, I'd have to think. I'm sorry. But uh, I guess I'll go with just the easy easy way out. I the Dr. Moreau. Uh, Christopher Delier, favorite John Wayne film. You know, I'm not, I haven't seen as many John Wayne movies as I would like to. I've seen a few here and there, and I like what I see. Uh, Hard to Go Wrong with True Grit. That's a great movie. Uh, the Cowboys uh, is a great movie as well. Uh, what else? Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I'll go with True Grit or The Cowboys. Those are really cool. Uh, you know, and uh, it's strange. When John Wayne dies in a movie, it's just, it hurts. Like, I don't know how to say that because John Wayne is just like that guy you never expect to bite it. So when he does, you're like, oh, wow. And then it spoiled the Cowboys. But hey, come on, guys. It was movie, made a movie, a movie was made in the 60s. But, you know, that, that that's such a powerful thing. And it's got Bruce Dern in it and Robert Carradine. So, yeah, it's a good one. Nick Mua, which is uh, the greater challenge as an actor, pouring out your emotions and hoping it rings true or physical challenges, i.e. being covered in blood, goop, doing nudity? Uh, that's a tough one. I mean, it depends on the role. You know, sometimes it's really cathartic to be an actor in a movie. But a lot of times, you know, I just, if if it's like a local or close to me and I think I can do the role, I usually take it. Uh, You know, you usually work with who you know and uh, stuff like that. But if I think I can do it, I'll do it. Uh, And uh, I do like to be challenged, though. I love, you know, a good challenge. But the physical stuff, uh, the blood and gore and getting nude, that's just, you know, that's not very hard. But, uh, you know, choreograph fighting and stuff like we did for Rip, which isn't out yet. And, uh, you know, that can be difficult. That can be grueling sometimes when you, you say you throw a left, you throw a right, and then you dodge and you jump. And that can, that can uh, be time-consuming and, and grueling, but it's fun at the same time. So, I don't know. It, I guess it depends on the role, which would be harder. If I got a role that I, I thought was super challenging, uh, and uh, that might be harder than the physical stuff. But I think the being... For me, memorizing lines and coming up with a character isn't hard, but part of that character is a physical movement, and sometimes I have trouble physically moving, as I would suggest the character would. I think that getting a voice down, 
getting man, maybe the way he talks or talks down is easier than actually finding a physical posture sometimes, if that makes sense. Matt Godfrey, I've always loved the documentary American movie, and one of the things I remember the most is how the filmmaker always needed to find more money to finance a short film. I know nothing about making any kind of film, so you can so can you explain how different things are when making independent films today compared to what it was 10 to 20 years back? I'm sure social media has helped with advertising, but I just want to hear your thoughts on all that. The question is badly worded, so skip it if you want. It's not that badly worded. I mean, you guys just heard me stumble over this whole video. But, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, the thing is, like 10, 20 years ago, it was a completely different ballgame. I mean, it, it was a lot less likely people were making movies for $2,000. Maybe they were. 20 years ago, no. About 20 years ago, probably not. But uh, I, I only work on such a, a such a low level. I don't think I can really answer that question, honestly. I mean, it depends what you're talking about. You're talking about no-budget movies? Uh, I mean, I made Slimy Little Bastards for a couple thousand dollars, and that was my money. I used people I knew, though, so I had connections there. They could help me out and not charge me a lot or do it, you know, as a favor. And I would do them as a fa do them do them as a favor, do their movie for, as a favor, stuff like that. So uh, on a super no budget movie, I think that you know, doing it yourself, spending money. But nowadays, people have you know Kickstarter, Indiegogo to help them out, and they can reach out and have people from all around the world come help on the set. So it's easier to find people, I guess, than it was. But uh, also, you get a lot less professional results sometimes. Uh, so, I don't know. And also, people don't buy anything. I think if an independent filmmaker 20 years ago or 10 years ago was good and they were actually making cool stuff on a good budget, they could actually make a living off it possibly. I don't think that's very possible anymore. I know some people don't buy as much as they used to. So I think, uh, you know, that's changed. Yeah, that, that's pretty much all I had. So I guess I'll hop right into uh, the reviews. Uh, the first one I'll be reviewing is uh, Lucio Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling by Arrow Films. This is not the first time I had seen this one. And actually, to be honest, this is probably, I think, the most underrated Lucio Fulci movie. It was released on Anchor Bay DVD and Blue Underground, I think, re-released it as well. But there has not been a United States Blu-ray until now. Of course, this is also released in the UK. Uh, there was a German, I believe, uh, Blu-ray floating around. But uh, yeah, Don't torture a duckling this was uh, a lot of people don't know before i guess probably almost anybody watching this knows that uh, before fulci had his like big supernatural horror uh film career with like zombie and uh new york ripper city of the living dead the beyond that like that those hits that he went on with even the black cat he uh made a bunch of different types of movies westerns comedies and he made a few giallo as well uh lizard and the woman's skin and don't torture the duckling probably being the most famous but uh perversion story in the psych or uh, perversion story and uh, the psychic i believe is the other one uh but regardless uh, don't torture a duckling is actually probably one of my all-time favorite fulci movies uh it has uh mark perel in it uh who else is in it Oh, geez, the lady who plays Flava, the heretic, is in it. Uh, her name is uh, Florina, Florina, Florinda Balkan, I believe is how you say it, and uh, Tomas Milani. Oh, Milan. He's a Cuban actor. He's in stuff like Oz and Companioneros and a bunch, almost human, a bunch of stuff. Really recognizable face. Uh, don't Torture a Duckling follows the story of a child murderer uh, in this small, superstitious, and very religious town. Uh, this reporter comes in, played by Tomas, and uh, he tries to figure out what's going on. Uh, what's so cool about this movie is that uh, Fulci has this, uh, you know, he gets his statements about religion and about superstition and, uh, you know, problematic Catholicism out in the film without completely demonizing it. Although there's a lot of horrible things that they do or horrible things that happen, it's coming from an insider who knows how these things kind of work. He feels like it's not completely 
outside of it and judging it from uh, where he doesn't know what he's talking about. It feels like it's very personal to him, uh, and it feels like uh, he knows what he's talking about. He also seems to be an outsider, so when they point out at the outsiders, uh, it feels genuine. Uh, the film... Uh, as, as it get closer, you realize that these townspeople are uh, pointing the finger at a lot of people, and there's one moment where somebody is uh, sort of wrongfully accused, and uh, it leads to probably one of the best scenes and one of the most tragic deaths in any film, period. Uh, it's one of those uh, scenes that Quentin Tarantino drools over, most certainly. Uh, they use a lot of music to their... Uh, their advantage and it's one of those deals where uh, I don't know why but Italian films they had music uh, made by the score but then they also had songs made directly for the movie incorporating the score or made by the score with the singer and they tend to work the best in these movies they, they use their the, the uh, they use them so well. I think one of the Pistol for Ringo does it too, with a lot of which was made for the movie. It just it just works perfectly, and it works extraordinarily well in here. The movie uh, looks great. It's shot great. There's a lot of uh, oneers, uh, handheld shots and uh, tracking shots. They lead into other things, and they always end on a note, uh, like a poignant note, like Ah, I see. They show you a lot without telling you it in this movie. Uh, there's a, a decent amount of nudity, and uh, there's always a good amount of mystery in here. And uh, the reason the killer is actually killing is more interesting than a lot of movies would do today. They would be like, uh, it's just a sexual pervert out there. It, it, it's kind of a, a little deep, uh, and it leads to one of the most ridiculous endings of all time. The score in here is actually done by uh, Riz Ortolani, and it is probably one of his most popular scores right next to Cannibal Holocaust. And he was the king at taking a beautiful music and putting it against something horrifically brutal. That's like... My, 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 you, you'll sucker me in. If you take something horrifically brutal in a movie and you put like these, be this beautiful music in there, it just, it, it immediately strikes like a, a deep emotional impact on me. And I, uh, I start to get teary eyed and whatnot. Uh, Cannibal Holocaust is really good at that and Resort Alani does it well in that. Well, I don't want to say he, you know, he didn't pick the times for the music, but maybe he did. I'm not sure. But, uh, he just works so well in that element. And Don't Torture Duckling has one of those amazing scenes. And as far as people would say, Lucio Falci for Stardy Argent to uh you know Dario Argento uh could never I don't want to I don't want to say this because I love Dario Argento but he could never shoot a scene like that and don't torture a duckling with uh Florinda in it uh but uh well shot uh the everything's great the location's great it's a rural giallo which is cool usually they're in the city they're high class this time it's more working uh trash people and, and, and not to be super negative or stick my nose up at that you know but I'm a working class guy myself, but I, I just, it's really cool to, it's not just high class society with this underlying sleaze in it. It's more of a, you know, a rural working class family. It still has the sleaze in it, but uh, I kind of enjoyed that. Uh, uh, the features, uh, actually, I remember there being uh, quite a bit on here. There's a great commentary by uh, Troy Horworth, I believe, or is it, uh, yeah, Troy Horworth does a great job on here. There's uh, interviews with the cinematographer and some other people. That's probably my favorite. The cinematographer let in on a lot of his tricks on how he lit and whatnot. Uh, the scenes. And uh, there's other interviews as well. Uh, there's also a great uh, feature on here about how uh, this movie really not... Uh, Lucio Fulci really isn't it this kind of misogynistic monster that the, you know a lot of people had painted him out to be. Uh, it's a great video essay. But regardless, it's, it's probably one of my favorite releases of the year. There's a DVD and Blu-ray in here. It's one of my favorite Giallo movies and one of my favorite Lucio Fulci movies. Uh, if you like this movie or if you like uh, Giallo or if you like Fulci uh, and you're interested in his other work besides like Zombie, Beyond City, Living Dead, House by the Cemetery, uh, New York River, Black Cat, uh, Conquest, anything but like that kind of supernatural stuff. If you want to see Fulci tackle something that's, you know, realistic and, you know, 
not New York Ripper's not uh, supernatural, but something more realistic and, uh, you know, less gratuitous, although it is, uh, check out Don't Torture a Duckling. It's a really smart, well-made movie, and I love the hell out of it. And they, Arrow did a great job with this release. I think it's really one of the most beautifully photographed Italian genre films. Actually, when they're talking about the North and South in a spaghetti western, they're actually not talking about the North and South in the Civil War. They're talking about the North and South in Italy. Gothic as a literary mode often explored Christian ideals of morality, which is the foundation of the film. The next one here. This is awesome. I can't believe I'm holding one. But this is the DVD. This is a Canadian import of the Spookies. It's actually by Intercontinental Video. And it, uh, it's kind of strange where you have to get this one. Uh, it actually is... Uh, there's a uh, In the description box on Screaming Toilet and YouTube below, before everybody blows up the question says, Where do I get it? Uh, because I know everybody wants a new 2K scan of the Spookies on DVD. Uh, but uh, there's a store in the description box on, uh, box on Facebook. I believe it's the only place selling it right now. Uh, it's, it, it's a local release. It's not released in the United States or anything like that. I don't know even how on the up and up it is in the United, for the United States to get it. But regardless, the Spookies. Yeah, this everybody knows the story of the Spookies. It's a 1986 really bizarre, uh, goofy movie with the everything kitchen sink approach. All the monsters thrown in there. Just complete ridiculousness. A bunch of people uh, traveling to a party get lost. They wouldn't be hanging out together. They're a smorgasbord of weird people. They get lost in this weird haunted house that has uh, rooms full of different monsters. It's two movies uh, kind of uh, stitched together. And you could tell where uh, some end and some begin. Although some they actually do a fairly decent job. Uh, at kind of uh, incorporating them together even though the movie doesn't make any damn sense uh, it's about this weird kind of uh, I guess I'd call him a necromancer I don't know what he is but uh, he's trying to bring his girlfriend back to life or this woman he loves kind of a uh, Dr. Five style but he needs bodies and whatnot, and he's creating all these monsters and the people are getting picked off by them uh, the music's very memorable. Anybody that hears it uh, will immediately recognize it uh, if you've seen the movie. It's one of those cheesy, completely batshit crazy movies that is awful and you know it's bad, but there's so much cool stuff going in here. There's great effects. There's cool monsters. It's never boring. Uh, the house looks great. Uh, it's actually filmed cool well. So there's so much cool stuff going on with the Spookies, but it will forever be uh, a what-if movie. What if this the original Twisted Souls version was finished? What if the other version was made you don't really know it's a it's a huge what if and confusing movie but it's so vastly entertaining and weird and everybody knows the spookies and i don't think anybody dislikes it uh the monsters included are a witch a giant grim reaper ghoulies ripoffs farting swamp things zombies a giant spider woman uh completely ridiculous to be honest uh the the, mo the most famous actor in the movie that i recognize is uh he plays one of the bums who dresses in a garbage bag uh in uh, street trash but he, he he pops up here and there in a bunch of stuff 
stuff. But uh, the DVD is pretty bare bones. It's a 2K scan. It looks and sounds better than I've ever seen it before. But then again, I don't. The the old Vitco DVD was garbage. Uh, the VHS looked like a VHS. But uh, regardless, it looks good. It's on DVD, and if you can track down a copy, I'd really recommend it. Uh, Long Live the Spookies. One of those kind of movies that uh, always gets stuck in your head. Has a lot of dumb, memorable lines. Happy birthday, Billy. And uh, in the very beginning, has some real dark stuff that almost doesn't feel in place like it feels like a kid's movie at times but then it had this horrible stuff a uh, little kid getting killed right in the first 10 minutes and you think geez man what the hell am i watching but that's the spookies that's weird no no happy birthday billy <laughs> Next one here is by Vinegar Syndrome. This is one of my favorite movies. I was super excited to see it released. This is Psychos in Love. They are Psychos in Love. They hate grapes. They hate them per 
bull and green. Anybody that's seen the movie will know that. There's a, a song in here. Uh, this is a really bizarre movie. Way before its time. Uh, self-aware. Super weird. It stars uh, Carmen from... Uh, some, I can't, can't say his last name. I'm not even going to try. But it's directed by... Uh, who is his... Uh, Belchard or Bulcher. I'm terrible with names. Just disregard what the hell I'm saying about names. But uh, Carmen's a great guy. I met him at Cinema Wasteland. But when I, this is one of the first movies I ever reviewed for my YouTube channel. Uh, it's got to be almost 10 years old. So if you want to see me uh, 10 years ago, uh, even dumber than I already was, even not knowing what I'm talking about even more so, then go watch the 10-year-old video. But regardless, Psychos in Love follows these two uh, weird zany characters that... Uh, Arch serial killers, one kills men at random, one kills women at random, they meet and they fall in love and they start uh, killing together and doing all these weird zany things. But it's it's not your typical uh, psychos in love type movie. Uh, it's really self-aware, it's really bizarre, and by listening to the commentaries I realized that, you know, you can tell as well, their influences aren't necessarily all the horror movies and, you know, that kind of stuff. It's more of a, you know, like, almost like vaudeville kind of inspired comedians, like Abbott Costello and, like, they said the Marx Brothers and stuff like before like you know early comedies a lot of uh sight gags it has really intelligent humor like the kind of like Abigail who's on first base type stuff with like a bar scene where uh, he's carrying on two conversations and it's getting confusing. That kind of stuff's really brilliant and smart, but then they have the really dumb stuff that's completely off the wall and ludicrous. And then on top of that, there's super tons of that things running. Sorry about that, but there's tons of gratuitous nudity and there's tons of uh, blood. Not not necessarily horrifically amazing special effects or anything, but there's some gross out uh, blood gags in here. But uh, on on top of all that, with all that going on. It has this sweet love story in the middle. And uh, Joe and uh, Kate just do such a wonderful job. The characters, Joe and Kate, are so likable, although they're serial killers. And a lot of the moments are lovey-dovey and cute. They have this music that plays through in a montage, and it's just, it'll crack anybody up. And the end of the movie, it just shows that so many of these killers are so full of crap, and they're so... Uh, full of hypocrisy and that's necessarily how it is like one uh, they, they basically kill people because uh, they both hate grapes and anybody that likes grapes is automatically bad and uh, one can't stand people talking about the weather which is one of the most common things that people talk about when they have nothing to talk nothing to talk about or they have nothing in common but uh, it's just a it's just a brilliant weird silly movie uh, with lots of great uh, fourth wall breaking jokes and uh, re repeated uh, humor I'm kind of a sucker for that you guys notice that like Nick uh, that like uh, Edgar Wright, Nick Frost, and the Simon Pegg, those guys will kind of do that kind of reoccurring humor, which is uh, based on such an old humor. Like, I, I think that's kind of some of the smartest humor is bringing back old jokes in the movie and maybe slightly hinting at them. And there's a lot of that. And uh, like I said, so much nudity. There's like laugh out loud moments in here that I don't think sight gags and just silly, silly stuff, but really wonderfully gross and cute at the same time. That, explains to anybody. There's two commentaries on here. There's uh, interviews with uh, Carmen and the director, uh, Gorman. Gorman, sorry. There there it is. It comes to me finally. And, uh, you know, they, they seem to, you know, be fond of the movie and uh, are, are happy that people enjoy it. There's a bunch of other stuff on here I didn't even get to. But uh, Vinegar Syndrome did a great job. It's in its, uh, I believe it's original aspect ratio. It is in full screen, and I believe that's how it was filmed. But uh, regardless, it's on cut. It's great. It's funny. Uh, super memorable movie. Check it out. I guess I thought that me being both a manicurist and a psychotic killer would turn a guy off.
the next one here is another one by Vinegar Syndrome. I finally watched Punk Vacation. Yeah. This one, actually, uh, I had never seen. This is one of those titles they released, and I'm like, man, I don't know what that is. Usually I'll know a title by its cover, or I'll be like, I recognize that cover. I heard about that. Punk Vacation, when they released that, they released it a while ago. I actually had not heard of it. I said, what's this? And they told me at the, the table when I bought it, they said, that's Rednecks versus Punks. And I was like, I gotta have that, you know. <laughs> Just by that description, I was like, I gotta have Rednecks versus Punks. Uh, yeah, Punk Vacation. Uh, what we have here is this kind of this desert small town uh with kind of a bad not bad cops but just they're not good at their job except the sheriff's kind of a piece of garbage and uh these punks ride through uh one causes trouble and uh a murder ends up happening this kind of pits the local police and uh some of the local townspeople against this this gang of punks that are staying out in kind of the wilderness and uh the film kind of progresses and it builds and it has these weird moments that uh it seems like it's building these punk characters as you know humans and some of these like redneck characters i'll use that loosely that term rednecks because i don't necessarily see the rednecks except that they uh like their guns but uh they use this these uh they start kind of like building deeper into the characters but at first it starts off with such a, a violent act that by the end of the movie you expect a climax and the climax is awful there isn't really a climax to be honest the movie kind of spurs out or fl flares out and it just burns out and it doesn't really go anywhere at the movie it's building up to this big climax and it turns into a comedy show like in the rest of the movie might have had humor here and there or unintentional humor uh but it, it just kind of goes completely comedic like they almost chickened out like well, i don't know or it was shot first and the, the other stuff was shot by somebody else i'm not sure there's no there's no real features to speak of so i don't know what this movie's story is but regardless the end of the movie comes in and it turns into a silly comedy and uh the way it's edited at the very end there's characters that just almost disappear that you really don't see what happens uh, it, it feels like an unfinished movie to be honest uh there's moments that are really cool and uh survival moments and if it would have had a good ending it would have been almost like a hit uh i would suggest watching the new kids instead but it's it, it's a it's fairly well made until the ending, I would say. Uh, it's interesting just because I had never heard of it, and it's always fun to find these kind of forgotten movies. But uh, I really can't strongly recommend Punk Vacation. It, it, it is a, like a curiosity, but it's not a great curiosity. It's interesting watching. It looks good. Uh, they did a good job with the release, and it, it's a so-so movie all around. A better ending would have really pushed this one over, but that's all I have to say about that one. Do now, coach. <laughs> you can put that gun down. Nice and easy, like. The next one here is the Wine Coop tapes. Uh, Joel D. Wine Coop. You guys should know who Joel D. Winecoop is. Uh, he's kind of a B-movie actor from Florida. He used to work with Tim Ritter. Uh, he's in stuff like Truth or Dare. He's in uh, Dirty Cop, No Donut, a slew of other stuff. Uh, he, he's like a B-movie king in Florida, and he's a really nice guy. And I've always been a big fan of him. Uh, I always thought he brought a... a, a a really uh, manic energy to the movies. Very, very intense, but very funny at the same time. And could, you know, one of those guys that can be like, to like in a second be mad to happy to crazy to funny he's just a really intense guy uh he sent me over this uh this anthology him and his uh wife made or they starred all of them 
Uh, she's an actress as well, uh, Catherine Weinkoop. They sent it over to check out. So I was like, oh, I'm excited to check this out. Uh, it's four stories and a wraparound in here. Uh, what I will say about this is I'm a fan of Joel and his wife. They're pretty solid actors and actresses. Well, actress and actor. I think they're pretty good. But uh, besides that, I don't really have much to say about it. I like the wraparound story. Basically follows this kind of weirdo played by Joel talking to his uh, his wife, Catherine, at this uh, this this printing place and he's supposed to sell them stories and he goes into his spiel about these four stories he's completely annoying he's ridiculous but he's really funny and charming and this one's actually probably my favorite of the bunch although there's some really uh, weak camera work where the camera goes in and out of focus here and there I understand the sound issues and stuff are expected on a really low budget movie these are very low budget but the camera going in and out of focus I don't know if somebody know, knew, noticed or not but that, that's kind of distracting at times but there is some funny moments here and there but the uh, the stories are as follows there's one about a really bad husband down on his luck who does something awful to his wife uh that one's okay i guess uh th like i said joel and his wife are always good that's the best highlight of the movie some of the other actors and all of them are iffy some are okay some are bad no not to point out anybody uh but the second one follows the story of uh, a, a wife who believes her husband's cheating on her hires a private eye to check it out and uh, there's a twist in there and uh the twist is so ridiculous at the very very end some weird stuff happens and uh you kind of have to chuckle uh, the next one is kind of like a grindhouse throwback or they're trying to do, uh, this one's probably the weakest of the bunch. Uh, the twist is, uh, it's typical, but these a lot of times are, uh, but it's just, uh, it doesn't really, it, it goes as expected. Uh, and the final one is basically a family fighting this crazy satanic cult in the woods. This one has the most extras in here. And uh, Joel gets to do the most in here as well. And uh, it's fun watching him and his wife, you know, kick butt and do some stuff. It seems that they do know how to fight. Uh, I know that Joel, I think, is a, actually a karate guy for sure. But uh, the, the digital stuff in here is pretty rough. Uh, there's not many uh, uh, practical effects in here. And uh, the camera work and the technical stuff really hurts the movie. But besides that, uh, if you're a big Joel fan and you like his wife, Catherine, I think that they're fun to watch and I'm intrigued by what they do and uh, give hats off for making a movie and putting it together. Uh, like I said, technical stuff's pretty rough, but uh, their acting's uh, fun and uh, they have a lot of energy. Uh, some of the other actors and actresses are okay. They, they, they hold their weight. Others, you know, are, are pretty bad. Uh, it seems that sometimes they're kind of like improving a lot of the stuff and it, it's just, they're not very good at it sometimes. Not I'm not talking about Joel and his wife, but other times and it seems like Maybe there's a, a kind of a mistake here or there, and they leave it in. But uh, you know, I, I can't hate on anybody that went out and made a movie. And like I said, I enjoyed watching it. But uh, there is a lot of technical problems. But it is a super low budget movie. But if you like Joel, uh, you should check it out. I think that most Joel D. Winecoop fans will will enjoy it. Uh, you know, he has a, a way of making a lot of stuff more entertaining than it should be. So uh, there's that as well. Uh, all the information will be in the description box if you want to check it out. Dana and Constance, Constance Sordermeyer. Meet her at 9 a.m. at Target. I forgot my watch. Buy my stories. She looks good. Wouldn't mind getting some of that is right. All right, here we go. Hi, hi, I'm Barry Atwater. How are you? to try and like an English voice like hello my name is Barry Atwater how are you hello hello my name is Barry Atwater yeah that sounds stupid how about 
My name is Barry Atwater. Ow. I'll just be myself. The next one here, I had uh, heard about this one. This is Cherry 2000, because I believe the uh, Pierce Cinema Podcast talked about it, and then also the director of Miracle Mile, which I loved. I loved Miracle Mile. But Cherry 2000, this is a super bizarre movie, and it has one of the most bizarrely put-together cast. It has Andrew, uh, is it David or Davis? He's in a Graveyard Shift, I can't remember. Melanie Griffin's also in it. Brian James makes an appearance. Uh, ben Johnson, which was great to see. And uh, Lawrence Fishburne, Marshall Bell, Tim Thomerson. Just a super weird cast. Robert Dazar. Just super strange, like I said. Uh, really weird movie again. Uh, this director has a tendency to take movies that shouldn't be action movies and stretches the plots out and makes them just these crazy action movies, which I kind of love. I love Miracle Mile. Uh, Cherry 2000 is okay. Uh, I, I, I enjoy a lot of it, but it's just super weird. Uh, it basically follows the story of this guy. It's in the future. Dating super complicated. Having sex is super complicated. It's more like a, a lawyer-client process here. And uh, our lead here has this robot called Cherry 2000. It's a rare model. Uh, it basically fills in sex, fills in relationships, and uh, something goes wrong with this Cherry 2000. And he hires this uh, Melanie Griffin to take him into this zone to get one. It's a very dangerous zone. Uh, Tim Thomerson, uh, it's kind of like cut-off places where the world's isolated and certain people own certain things, it seems like. Uh, Post-apocalyptic, I will say. Uh, Tim Thomerson runs this weird, strange group of, like, golfer yuppies. I don't know how to explain them, but they dress in Hawaiian shirts and they act really relaxed, but they're horrible monsters at the same time. Uh, and he obviously wants to stop them and, you know, kind of abduct people into his cult. Uh, and uh, along the way, he uh, Ben Johnson seems to be friends with Melanie Griffin, and he's kind of this old-timer that hangs out in this mine and ends up helping him. Uh, what I really enjoyed about the movie is Ben Johnson is great in it. He's uh, You guys know Ben Johnson. I talked about him last week. He's in The Wild Bunch, Town That Dreaded Sundown, uh, Hunter, and uh, so among other things. He's a bunch of stuff, but uh, Dillinger. But uh, it's really good in this. He's older in this one. This was made in the late 80s. He died a few years later, and he has this weird sentimental uh, speech in here that it, it's, it's, I don't want to say it because a lot of times when there's like here's a sentimental old guy listen to him give a monologue it can be bad it, it can be you know or it's just too cold and distant i to I would name the Nolan movies for that. I, I feel those are cold, too cold and distant for sentimental old guys to be in them. But this has a warmth to it, and Ben Johnson gets to deliver this nice warmth in his speech, and it, it, I, I really enjoyed it. It, it was kind of touching. Uh, this is again. One of these uh, movies where uh, it feels like a kid's movie, but awful stuff happens as well. Like, it has this weird sense of adventure and fantasy, but then, like, people will die you don't expect in horrible ways. Uh, and that does tend to happen in here. It, it's a fairly fun action movie. It has its moments, but it's really hard to get past that this guy is basically forcing these people to go in this wasteland and help him find a sex spot. Uh, so it's right off the bat, it's hard to get on the guy's side that he wants to go find the sex spot. Uh, they do try to uh, make up for it to say it's so hard to actually have a relationship in this day and age, in this world where he's from. So th there's that, but uh, really weird, bizarre movie. And, uh, I I love it because it's so weird and bizarre, but I also has its own weird problems at the same time due to, uh, having a hard time, uh, buying that someone would go into a dangerous, dangerous place for a sex robot, you know? It's got a lot more to say about that than Ex Machina, I guess. <laughs> In the future, the world has survived. Romance has not. Right, so we'll say a dinner, complete sexual encounter, optional episode in the morning, right? I gotta run this past my own lawyer. Pleasure is strictly business. But it will be possible to have the perfect mate 
a Cherry 2000. Looks great. Thanks. Thoughtful. Desirable. She'll never run out on him. Just short out. Sorry, kid. Total internal meltdown. Now you got her basic memory right here. Vocal patterns, verbal, whatever. Basic voice. Don't look so glum. Your chassis's out for the count, all right? You got the chip. You go in, you pick yourself out a new model. You slide it in the slot. You got yourself your girl bag in a brand new frame. Give me a call if you find a cherry. Cherry 2000. Look, my friend, you're going to be a very old man, round in the middle and bone dry before you find one of those in these parts. That's a chance I'll just have to take. Then, the adventure begins. Why don't you hire a tracker to go into Zone 7? Oh, we got a policy against trackers in these parts. Nobody goes into Zone 7. Yeah, they got one of the original warehouses down there. Girls stacked on the shelves like pies. I'm looking for someone to go into Zone 7. I'm E. Johnson. You're not gonna find anybody better than me, mister. I'm not a machine. Do you know where they keep these babies? We call it the graveyard. It is the worst place in the zone. Well, maybe I can get in there and find this thing, but I need somebody riding shotgun in order to make it out in one piece. I want you to chase those birds till they drop. If you think it's tough to meet the right people now, wait till you go looking for a Cherry 2000. The next one here. I know everybody's going to say, why are you reviewing that? And then they're going to say, I can't believe you hadn't seen that before. And it is embarrassing, I will admit. I'm going to review the first Magnificent 7 from this lovely box set. Uh, I had not seen the Magnificent 7. Yeah, I know it's bad. I know that's bad, and I understand that. But, you know, the Magnificent 7 has a, a brilliant cast. has Yul Brunner, Eli Wallach, Charles Bronson, Steve McQueen, James Colburn, uh, Brian Dexter. It's got one of those lovely casts, uh, Robert Vaughn from Chud 2. You guys will know that. But uh, essentially, this was made in 1960, I believe, by the same guy who did The Great Escape. He would later use uh, Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, and James Colburn in that, which I love that movie. But uh, this is based off the old Japanese film, which came a couple years before, uh, The Seventh Samurai. Uh, which I haven't seen either. I know. I'm a garbage person. I should have, you know, not watched 10 horror movies for 10 years straight. But uh, regardless, uh, The Magnificent Seven. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of, like, you know, uh, I guess academic things about a lot of Western movies. And uh, learning The Magnificent Seven was kind of at that cusp right at the end, like the, the kind of traditional, let's go get them kind of good guy versus bad guy Western. But. Uh, it's, it's such an interesting movie. Uh, these seven guys basically are hired by this village to protect them from these evil bandits. Uh, and uh, they all have a reason for doing it, which is what I love. They all have a reason to put their lives on the line, whether it's money, whether it's uh, to be a hero, whether it's in their nature to test themselves, uh, whether it's to find love. There's so many things that these guys do it for. And uh, they have a good uh, chemistry in the film. Eli Wallach's a great bad guy. He plays the bad guy. Uh, and he has some very memorable lines in here that say a lot. They, they go far. He says, you know, my first mistake was kindness. And he says uh, that, that that's just a, a great line in the movie. But uh, it also has that that really great, uh, you know, no matter what, you have a loyalty. Like, The Wild Bunch has this same loyalty, which is which is crazy because The Wild Bunch is such a down, dirty movie compared to this. And it, it turns all these Western tropes on their head, which 
you know, because these people, you know, like guys like Sam Peckinpah were obviously fans of film and they knew what they were doing when they take these old Western tropes. They turn them on their head in this. And uh, there's a sense of loyalty between the Magnificent Seven, no matter how much they may not seem to like each other, how much they fight. There's a sense that, you know, you ride with somebody and you don't abandon them. You, you get along with them. They're, they're part of your family now, or regardless of what. And uh, there's a scene in here with Brad Dexter, uh, Harry, where he comes back. And it, it's a great scene. And it, it reminded me of that. But uh, Robert Vaughn gets to play kind of a juicy role in here. He's a gunfighter who lost his courage. He has a great speech in here about no enemies, no, no, uh, you know, no, no insults taken. Uh, Steve McQueen, you know, uh, does a pretty good job as well. Hugh Brenner's got the perfect cowboy walk, and Charles Bronson uh, plays one of his actually most sentimental roles and a, a great role as well. Uh, the special features on here. There was a great documentary talking about with the people who are still alive. Uh, I don't. I think Bronson was still alive at the time, but he he didn't partake in the interview. But uh, the, the the director or the writer or somebody on there. I believe the director's dead, but one of the uh, people on the set was saying, man, this is going to be tough to get all these egos under one umbrella, even though a lot of these guys were kind of coming into their own, like James Colburn and Steve McQueen and Charles Bronson weren't the big stars that they later became. But he said, uh, all right, one of the first shots they took, all the Magnificent Seven are just riding through. He says, first thing, Steve McQueen tries to dip his canteen down in a river to get attention. And then Charles Bronson's unbuttoning his shirt to show off his muscles. And uh, he said, Brad Dexter's just giving this long, like, kind of like speech, Shakespearean speech. He's like, oh, no, this is going to be tough. Uh, and they said there's a lot of, like, you know, these small kind of childish games playing against each other to get the, the spotlight, you know. But it was all... When, when the push came to shove, you know, it was a professional thing. But it, it was really cool to hear that kind of stuff and these these uh, people trying to take the spotlight to become these big stars that they eventually would become. And seeing a lot of these guys so young, although Charles Bronson never looked young. I think he was in his 30s when this movie was made anyways. But, uh, you know, uh, seeing James Colburn look so young throwing the knife was really cool. And uh, the movie, it's not one of these movies where it's like everything's half hunky-dory at the end, although it is sort of, you know, people die and it, it's sad. But, uh, you know, I really enjoyed the hell out of it it was one of those movies that i i've been meaning to watch for years and years and getting to finally see it was really amazing but uh that's the magnificent seven memorable score amazing cast some great dialogue and just a truly memorable experience seven 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 the magnificent seven they were only seven, but they fought like seven hundred. Bring the kind of justice that would last. Seven, seven, seven. The magnificent seven. They made a brave stand. The magnificent seven. They fought for the future to wipe away their past. The magnificent seven. Done. Somehow I don't think you solved my problem. Solving your problems isn't in our line. We deal in lead, friend. So do I. We're in the same business, huh? Only as competitors. Get up and face me! Do you get up? Look what I found. That's where they were. You hid them. Uh, sure, they hid them. But she won't tell me where. They're afraid. She's afraid of me, you, him, all of us. Farmers. Their families told them we'd rape them. 
seven. They were only seven, but they fought like seven hundred to bring the kind of justice that would last. They made a brave stand, a magnificent seven. They fought for the future to wipe away their past. Seven, seven, seven. The next one here is uh, one of my all-time favorites. I used to watch it all the time. Uh, this is Walter Hill. This is Extreme Prejudice. This is the Japanese import Blu-ray. Yeah, Extreme Prejudice. This has probably always been my favorite Walter Hill movie. I really always like Southern Comfort and this. I, I always held a, a fondness to this. Uh, basically, this movie has a... It it's a modern Western, really. But it's got a great cast. It's got uh, Nick Nolte, Powers Booth, Clancy Brown, Michael Ironside, William Forsythe, uh, Tom Lister, uh, Maria Aldonzo. I can't say her. Conchita. She's in The Running Man, which is one of my favorites as well. Uh, but regardless, this is almost the end of this movie turns into a remake of The Wild Bunch. You can tell Walter Hill is inspired by the old westerns and knows film, inspired by Peckapaw. I think he wrote the script to The Getaway, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, he has that inspiration. This is actually written by John Milius, and John Milius is one of those guys that knows film. He knows westerns. He knows this kind of these tripes, these tropes and stuff, and he turns them on their head as well. Uh, but the Extreme Prejudice follows these two old friends, Nick Nolte, who's now a Texas Ranger in Powers Booth, who's across the border selling drugs. Uh, and they have this. Uh, they have this weird uh, relationship. Uh, Nick Nolte wants to follow the law comes first before anything. And he wants Powers Booth to stop you know, selling it uh, and come back and be arrested, yada, yada, yada. Uh, in between them is uh, Nick Nolte and Powers Booth, Nick Nolte's girlfriend and Powers Booth's former girlfriend. Uh, and she has this strange love triangle where she loves them both. And it, it, that's probably the... I don't want to say weakest, but it might be one of the most strangest uh, plot points and doesn't work completely. Uh, in the middle of that, you have Michael Ironside, who is this uh, this military guy who brings in his uh, group of, uh, I guess, uh badasses to take out uh, Cash Bailey, who's Powers Booth, but they're doing it secretive. They're already listed dead on file, and that, that includes a bunch of people, recognizable faces in that group. Clancy Brown's in that, like I said, Ironside, uh, William Forsythe, and uh, the uh, Lamar Luttrell from Revenge of the Nerds actually plays in that as well, and a couple familiar faces. The guy from Bluxy Blues is in here, the bully Wachowski. He's in it. Uh, Matt Mulhorn, I believe his name is, and uh, Dan Tullis, I believe, is the other one, and he's recognizable. I think he popped up with Married with Children a couple times, but it's got a lot of memorable faces uh, it's a great movie. Lots of good action. Lots of good uh, drama. Rip Thorne's in this movie. I can't believe I forgot Rip Thorne. He plays uh, Nick Nolte's partner. Uh, the action shot like a peck and paw style when it happens. Slow motion. Big squibs. Uh, brutal. And this movie has some of the most memorable lines that anybody could ever ask for. Uh, you know, Cash Bailey. Geez, Jack, it's almost after four. And uh, Rip Thorne's line. Hell, Jack, the only thing worse than a... Uh, politicians, a child molester, or something like that. Just these lines get stuck in your head. Uh, Clancy Brown in this movie is so memorable. He's got this great mo uh, speech about a, a Ford truck. That's why I like Fords. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, I love the camaraderie. Uh, I mixed up my word. I love the friendship. Let's go with the easier word for me. The friendship between the soldiers and the honor. And uh, it shows how smart John Milius is in the movie when he has. Uh, uh, William Forsythe say this line that says, man, I think we're heroes, you know? It's just the world's so... Heroes need a reason. They need a cause. And then Magnificent Seven, I go back to thinking that they did have this. They needed a cause as well. And uh, he says, it's just things are so screwed up now that nobody knows what's going on. And that, that could portray today. And it's just, it's a great line that he understands that, you know, you know, 
and he plays into the old peck and paw tropes there and he plays into like the old western tropes at the same time but the end of this movie is balls out action uh, cr uh you know double crossing uh amazing stuff uh has that you know that it feels so much like the Wild Bunch at the end. I would say that it's basically a remake at the very end with a great cast and just insane stuff going on. Uh, great score as well. No complaints. Uh, just one of the best, most amazing uh, Walter Hill uh, modern westerns. 87, I guess that's not modern anymore. 30 years old. But uh, a very memorable, great movie that I think most people will enjoy if they check it out. Uh, Walter Hill probably one of his top three. I know people will be like, The Warriors, 48 Hours. I like Extreme Prejudice and Southern Comfort. But Extreme Prejudice, amazing movie. You guys got to see it. Absolutely imperative that this job look like civilian operation. Get down! Kiss the floor! I expect a little cooperation. Ralston, I expect you to stay out of my way. The damn gun down, soldier! Somewhere in America, a secret war is being waged. This is a case of national security. Go. A war of deception. It's a daylight hit. I come over to talk about the bomb that went off yesterday. I got two people dead. Fought by a phantom army. Sergeant Buck Adwater killed Laos in 74. How can they be officially dead and two of them locked up in there? It's classified. Now, he's the only one that stands in their way. I got a feeling the next time we run into each other, we're going to have a killing. Termination with extreme prejudice. Anyone could be the enemy. Tell the FBI to kiss my... Tell me about it. I can't talk about it. I gotta do something about it. Nothing is what it seems. What the hell's the military robbing banks in Texas for? And unless he can stop them, it's poison. Everything he stands for is at stake. Very unusual. What is? Ordering the termination of an American civilian peace officer, clearly loyal to the country and in the process of bringing a known criminal to justice. What we're gonna do is we're told. Right, Sergeant? Kill him. Kill him like an animal. The only thing that ever scared the hell out of me, Cash, was myself. We are space-age high-tech, and we get caught by some stone-age cowboy. Nick Nolte. Extreme Prejudice. But I guess I'll get into the questions. What do I got here? Uh, Jonathan Wilhelm. Uh, which soundtrack do you like better, Demons 1 or 2? You know, uh, I've seen Demons 1 a lot more. I remember the soundtrack in Demons 1 a lot more than Demons 2. I'm going to have to go with 1. I mean, I remember Billy Idol's being in there, and uh, uh, there's a bunch of stuff. And that song when he plays when he's riding the motorcycle in the theater, like, whoosh, whoosh, got to go Demons 1. Uh, Jason Kruger, how do you decide what you watch from your collection? Do you keep duplicate? All right, I'll go to the first question first. Uh, a lot of stuff I get to review shows up on my doorstep, and I, I have to go through that. I, I, I watch a lot of that, and then I uh, watch whatever the hell I feel like watching. You know, sometimes I'll get in like a place where I watch a bunch of westerns or a bunch of Walter Hill movies or a bunch of Tarantino movies, or just, you know, I'll be like, well, now I'm just going to watch, you know, zombie movies or vampire, whatever. You know, I go through my streaks. Uh, so I, I watch, it's a mixture of stuff that shows up to review, which uh, I enjoy, and stuff that I want to watch. So I try to mix it up. And my his other question is, if you do you keep duplicates of movies so you have a better version? Uh, you know, I don't tend to keep the DVDs. That's why I give them away in contest. Or if if I get a, a movie on Blu-ray and uh, 
the DVD and it has all the same features and all the same commentaries and exactly the same on cut. If everything's ported over, I get rid of it. If it's not, I try to hold on to it. Uh, Nick Mua, do you sent, do you get sent all kinds of movies because you're a professional movie critic or do you have to buy them all yourself? I wouldn't say I'm professional. I'm definitely the most amateur movie critic around. I mean, I've been doing it a long time, but it doesn't mean I'm professional. Uh, I write for Screaming Toilet and, uh, I do the YouTube stuff, but, uh, I wouldn't say I'm professional. I would say I'm amateur. I mean, I, I my full-time job is not movie, uh, critique. I wish it was, but, uh, I'm not good enough at it and, uh, I don't think it would pay my bills. I have, I spend a lot of money. But, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, what was exactly the question? Did you get sent movies? Well, I buy a lot myself. I get sent a lot, but I buy a lot. So I, the more I get sent, the more I buy. You know, I like to support. And sometimes I even feel bad about getting stuff to review because I'm like, man, I want to support, so I'll buy other stuff from them. I don't know. It, it's kind of a weird slippery slope. Like you want to do the review and you hope that you're getting them sales if you like the movie. I mean, sometimes you get bad stuff and you got to be honest. But uh but sometimes, you know, you just feel like, man, I hope that I'm getting them sales if because this movie is worth they're worth the time to watch and worth buying. And I would have bought it if it wasn't sent. And, you know, and it's so all go buy some stuff, you know, from them that not. It, it, it's kind of strange, you know. Jeremiah Ball, my question would be, what do you think about the new Halloween movie coming out next year? Jamie Lee Curtis returning and are you excited for it? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm going to be honest here. Uh. You know, I enjoyed the Friday the 13th movies, Nightmare on Elm Street movies, but I think Halloween has the worst series, like, record. Like, one and two, I remember liking. It's been so long since I watched any Halloween movies. Three as well. Four and five, I'm, I don't remember very well. I remember six, seven, I just, like, eight. I'm like, these are bad. Like, and I don't even hate the Rob Zombie movies, but it's just, like, the Halloween's got so many bad eggs in it that I don't know. I, I don't really get excited like that. I just, it's really hard to make uh, something after so many years be a direct sequel. I, I don't know about, enough about it to be excited about it, except that Jamie Lee's in it. It's just, uh, I'll probably watch it, but I don't know how I feel about it. Christopher Dallier, favorite zombie movie, Day of the Dead. I also like Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, uh, Return of the Living Dead, Zombie, Dead Alive, Let's Super Corpses Lie. Uh, zombies are my favorite, so, you know, I but it's Day of the Dead. Uh, Mr. Tony, that's also my favorite movie, is Day of the Dead, so. Uh, Mr. Tony of the Dead, my question for you is almost like my last question last week, but what movie would you like to see Screen Factory release that they hadn't already? Uh, I'm trying to think, and usually they release like MGM or Universal, so Killer Clowns from Outer Space would be a nice one for them to do, or uh, Blood Games, I believe is MGM. I have not seen that movie, but it's one that I believe is an MGM title that I wanted to see. I know Kino will do MGM as well, but, you know, Blood Games, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, uh, I'm, I'm interested in stuff that I haven't seen to be honest, to get released. But Killer Clowns is a great movie. I'd like to see them do the special treatment on it, you know, special edition. And I'm sure they probably will eventually. Bill Wolford, what are a few of your guilty pleasure movies? We all have them. Ah, uh, jeez. You mean like I know it's crap, but I love it? In the horror genre? Or ones that I would be embarrassed at telling people I like? Uh, back when 10 Things I, I... I'm not really embarrassed by anything anymore. But uh, back when I remember when 10 Things I Hate About You came out, I thought that was a fine movie. You know, I was like, this is all right, you know. And I remember that was... I was pretty young, so it was one of those ones like, eh, eh. But, you know, I mean, hell, I remember liking Scary Movie. And I'm sure a lot of people were like, that's garbage. But I laughed. Very Scary Movie 1 and 2 a lot when they came out. Uh, guilty Pleasure of Horror Movies that I, I know aren't very good. Yeah, Max is one of my favorites. Like, I know it has its problems, but I enjoy the hell out of it. Uh, stuff like that, probably. I just watch them over and over again, and people are like, these are garbage. Why are you watching these over? I'm like, I don't know. I like it. It has a charm to it. Probably stuff like that. Joel, Joe B., have you seen Mother? Thoughts? No, I have not seen Mother. And what's your thoughts on studios using horror marketing and art films that are not strictly horror genre fair? Well, you know, there's lots of false advertisement going on. But, uh, you know, the, 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 
the genre lines get blurred a lot. Not necessarily, you know. It's just like, is it horror? Is it not? I don't know. Uh, and then if it wins a bunch of awards, it's like, it's not a horror movie. It's a psychological thriller with horror themes. It's like, whatever. I don't know. Did it horrify you? Was it supernatural? There's so many different ways to describe what a horror movie is. Uh, but I do feel that uh, a lot of art films do have these horrific moments in there. And sometimes they go further than a horror movie. They push the boundaries. They're more progressive nowadays than horror movies. Horror movies used to be the progressive balance for movies. You know, they would push things. And a lot of times now it's art films. But sometimes the art films are awful. Sometimes they're great. You never know, just like a horror movie. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't. If it gets people to see it. I'm happy, you know. Anything to make people see movies they typically wouldn't is great. Although there will be disappointed people, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. Eh. <laughs>